Welcome to another episode of the Badass Women of Central Park, where every time we bring you an awesome journey of a badass woman in our neighborhood. My name is Dan Clark, and it is my honor to host this podcast and get to learn from so many of you each time. It is my goal for you to see yourself as the badass you truly are. This episode's badass is Lauren Ross. Lauren is a licensed clinical social worker and a leader in the field of social mental health with over 22 years of experience in public education and clinical settings. Lauren is passionate about creating spaces of belonging, support, and resilience for youth and families. Lauren currently works at Cherry Creek School Districts where she serves as a leader of the mental health team with over 170 school psychologists and social workers. In 2019, she trained under Brene Brown to become a certified Dare to Lead facilitator she has brought this training to the public education and nonprofit sectors to build courageous leadership skills with the amazing humans doing hard and important work. In 2022, she shared the story of Project Village on the stage of TEDx Cherry Creek, encouraging all of us to show up in social media spaces with a greater courage, compassion, connection, and community. Lauren currently lives in Denver, Colorado with her amazing musical husband, David, as well as their two children, Jade and Maya, and their schnoodle Oreo. This podcast is brought to you by Mama Bird Memories, where we empower Black, Latina, and Indigenous women from Montbello through guided conversations with your loved ones. Now doing graduation conversation recordings, wisdom conversation recordings, and wedding conversation recordings. We are doing such good and important work on so many levels. Please support Mama Bird Memories. All right. Good morning, Lauren. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, we have all had this interview on the books for months now, so I'm excited to talk to you in our busy lives. And uh, we don't know each other, so I'm also excited to learn about you and, and the work that you do. And one of the things that I know you wanted to talk about, which I think is um, sounds amazing, is the work you're doing with um, Project Village. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Great to meet you too, Dan. Um, so Project Village started as a little Facebook group on March 13th, 2020. Um, as many of us experienced that day when the world shut down and we got the email from our school district that we were going into a short um, quarantine period to stop the spread of COVID-19, I had sort of a crazy idea that night um, while I was making dinner with my kids and having a little panic attack, you know, what am I going to do with my kids for the next two weeks um, due to the pandemic? Um, I decided to start a little Facebook group, um, just a little space to connect with other friends and family around the country who also were going into lockdown in their parts of the country. And I'm someone who just needs my people um, when I'm in a, a challenging situation. And so um, I decided to call the group Project Quarantine 2020 and um, put some activity sheets up that night and um, sent it out to all the friends and family I could think about. And the group, um, in a nutshell, um, kind of fast forward, went viral over the next few weeks and went from 60 people in one day to 10,000 people by the following Friday, and then grew to about 42,000 people within a few weeks all around the world. So I know you're in Poland right now uh, with your family. So we had people in Europe, we had people in Australia, New Zealand, um, in Asia, 
you know, all of us in a global pandemic and, you know, the same virus, but very different and diverse experiences. And so um, the group truly became a village for so many. And so we ended up changing the name of the group to Project Village. And it just became such an incredible space of positivity and support and compassion where we all navigated this crazy experience together. And so that's just a, a little bit of a nutshell about Project Village. That, that is so cool and, and so surprising, I'm sure, to you along that path. And we talked just briefly before this, and it's something that you said that I think is so true. Is we, we typically do see, and I certainly do look at it this way, social media and online platforms often as being so toxic, but there's yeah. such the good other side of it where you can bring people together. And um, when done well, it, it is so effective. What kind of um, things have you seen throughout your work with Project Village? Yeah, so I, I think there were a few things that as I was looking at how rapidly the group grew and how people were really drawn to it and really, you know, felt like it was a space of support for them. Um, number one was just resource sharing. There was a lot of things that I posted personally about, you know, here are some different online activities to keep your kids busy while we're in lockdown during those those early months, and then group members posting all sorts of great ideas. So here's a schedule that I'm using to keep my kids engaged in their online learning, and here's how I'm setting up a, a virtual learning space in the corner of my living room while I'm working from home 10 feet away for the first time, um, and also just a ton of empathy for one another and compassion. So um, you know, I think it all feels like a blur right now, but when I, I look back and I scroll through the group in those early weeks, we were just all so afraid and so isolated. And that level of isolation is bad for everybody. And so I think the group just made us feel less alone. And there was a lot of me too that happened in the group where people could share, you know, I've got um, a, a family member who is a doctor and coming home every day and having to strip down their clothes in the garage and and sleep in, in the guest room or sleep at the hospital because he doesn't wanna bring home this scary virus to our family. Um, and people that were essential workers and still having to go to the grocery store or have to you know, do the work that they do every day. And just what a scary um, and lonely experience that felt like for so many. And so the group really um, provided that space of connection and community that we all just desperately were craving during such a scary time. Yeah, and I'm sure it can be so um, a winding path of kind of where, where it evolves and how the group evolves, which is so amazing too, especially when you build up this community. Um, all this too or led you to do a TED Talk. You, you said something about that. Tell me, can you tell me about that experience, how that came about and how that went? Yeah, that is true, which is very outside of um, how I operate. I am not one that likes to get on stage, like even just having this one-on-one -on -one with you. And knowing that it's going to be out in the world feels a little scary. I'm sort of naturally an introvert who would prefer to be cuddled up with my dog with a good book. Um, but it was it was definitely an idea worth spreading. And that's the TED mantra is, you know, what do we want to get out into the world? What message? And this felt like a really important message to share. And Project Village was just kind of a, an example of what social media could be. But the bigger message is that what if all of us show up with greater compassion and generosity of spirit and resource sharing and social media in any platform that we're in. So it could be on Instagram, it could be on TikTok. And there were many examples of that, but I think you know a lot of the 
the negative examples of social media are the ones that are out there. So in fact, while I was doing research for my TED talk, I just did a quick Google search on, um, you know, TED talk social media. And all of the ones that you pull up are examples of how harmful social media is to our mental health, um, how toxic social media is, and we should just all swear off it um, altogether, right? And so many of us have because it's just become so, um, it can just be so dis, um, disenchanting or whatever the word is, you know, it, it, we, we all just get so um, tired of how toxic and um, ugly social media can be that we swear off it all together. And so I wanted to share a different kind of story because social media is not going away. It's still in its infancy. It's only about 20 years old. And we have an opportunity to reset how we show up in social media. And so that is the idea that I wanted to, to share from the stage. And now that I've done it, I'm glad it's behind me. I don't know that I ever want to do that again. It was terrifying, but also exhilarating. Um, I felt like I had a hangover for the next two days after doing the TED Talk, but um, I'm very excited that um, that message is out in the world. Yeah, good, good for you and good for pushing yourself out of your comfort zone because I think that's where the, the growth certainly comes from. And yeah, I can't imagine. I think it is very intimidating, especially kind of a, a memorized speech that you're, it's easier for me to play off somebody else and do it that way when it's only you on stage. Um, what kind of coaching did you get or good tips before you did that? Something that was completely out of your comfort zone in that way that really helped you to, to be successful at that TED Talk? Yeah, so I had a pretty unique experience. Um, I think that every TEDx um, affiliate has a different way of helping prepare the speakers. And some are, you know, you're working one-on-one -on -one with a coach and you're memorizing the speech. And my experience was very different. I worked with TEDx Cherry Creek and uh, the founders of TEDx Cherry Creek are um, Daphna Michelson Janae, who is actually one of our state representatives here in Colorado and her husband, Michael Janae. And they have a very unique um, training process that is all about um, connection with the other speakers. And so we had a group of 17 of us and this was actually TEDx Cherry Creek women. So it was all women and a very diverse group. Um, I was only one of about five white women and the other were women of color from all different backgrounds and areas of expertise. Um, and so our experience was very much a communal shared experience of um, building our, our talk and evolving it over time and practicing with one another, practicing with other people in our communities until it, um, it felt polished, but not too polished. It was not meant to be a memorized talk, but more extemporaneous. And so the talk I gave from the stage that day came out differently than any time I had done it in practice. And it was, it was just what it was meant to be. I do. Uh, I, I'm not good at watching myself after the fact. I, I see the benefits of it. I, I, I understand all that, but it's still hearing your voice is different, which I've gotten mm -hmm. used to through this podcast and all these other things. But have you watched your speech? And, and how did you respond when you watched it? Were you, were you nice to yourself? Were you practicing what you're preaching? I, yes. So big dose of self-compassion, right? Like, oh, wow. Um, one thing I noticed, which was pretty funny, I didn't say, um, one time I had practiced very hard not to say, um, but I said, and so about 15 times. And the wonderful thing about Michael Janae is he can edit our talks and make it just as fabulous as we want it to be. So if we needed to take a pause and collect our thoughts from the stage, he could edit out that pause and make it look positively seamless. Um, so he, uh, per my request, edited out a few of the and so's um, <laughs> uh, to make it sound like, um, it was just as it was meant to be.
so yes, I, I was very, very pleased with how it turned out. I was glad to have that experience. It was just um, a really incredible and memorable experience. It was very cool. And I, I just think that what a great resource for the world. You talk about sharing resources. I have spent hours and hours and hours learning from different various TED Talks and just a, a wonderful experience. And I've got one in me somewhere one day. So I'm, I'm hoping to get on that stage one day. And if a family members and friends have done it. <laughs> yes. uh, and it just seems like going through that process and knowing you can do it and learning from it and, and having to pick a topic and go for it. That just seems like something that um, everyone should go through that really wants to grow in that way. Um, Take me through a little bit about where you are in your career. I know you're doing all this great work with Project Village, but you also have a fascinating career. Can you tell me what you do currently and kind of uh, we'll get backtracked a little after of how you got there? Yeah, absolutely. So I am a school social worker by trade. Um, I got my master's degree at the University of Texas about 22 years ago, which is a little mind blowing that it's been two decades of, of this work. Um, I did about a decade of work in um, community mental health in Texas, California, and then Colorado. Um, so my focus has always been um, child and youth mental health, um, as well as um, some family therapy work. Um, I did a little bit of private practice early um, in my time in Colorado about 17 years ago as well. And um, the past seven years, I have been at a Cherry Creek School District and I hope that that's where I get to retire someday. So I've worked at Denver Public Schools, Aurora Public Schools, and then Cherry Creek for, for the past uh, seven years or so. Um, currently, I serve as one of the leadership of our um, district mental health team. We have about 170 amazing psychologists and social workers that serve the students of Cherry Creek. We have about 55,000 students. Um, incredibly diverse demographics. We have some of the wealthiest families in the city and some of the poorest families in the city. Um, the area of the district that I serve is mostly title schools. And so that means uh, many families who are um, living at or below the poverty line and um, numbers of families who are recent migrants to Colorado. And so um, we have a couple of our schools that have you know 40 or 50 home languages and um, incredibly diverse family experiences. And um, it's just a true honor to get to serve such an incredible team and, and a district that really values um, youth mental health, uh, which, is, which is actually quite unusual quite often in, in uh, school work, which I know you know as an educator, there's such a huge emphasis on academics and rigor and meeting academic standards and preparing for standardized testing that we lose sight of the whole child. And so that is a huge area of emphasis that the whole well-being of the child, but also of teachers and educators is so incredibly important to our work. And we can't help our kids succeed academically if we're not serving um, their physical health and their mental health as well. Yeah, that's something that I have come to the awareness of recently. I, I, I consider myself just incredibly privileged and have only recently found out what that actually means and in all the different ways that I do have privilege. Um, and one of them, all these privileges lead to me having a pretty good state of mental health and, and I always have taught students that were in far different socioeconomic brackets than I was in and I've always taught in Montbello. Um, and was aware of the students' mental health issues when I was teaching to some degree, but then the pandemic hit and we, we started Mama Bird and I started really working with graduates and so they could be more honest about their different situations and the mental health they're dealing with. And I was working with our 
top students at the time who have not had success outside of high school that typically gone away to college and then had to come back or came back. Um, and so much of it is on the mental health end and just all of these different things that often push them to academic success, mm-hmm. whether it was dealing with one of our students as a young Muslim woman who's literally trying to kind of get her, her parents to, to see her in the same way they see their sons, which, which ha- still hasn't happened, even though she was a valedictorian and all these other things. Um, and the ups and downs that come with that and having to kind of try to navigate the world that's already very difficult to navigate um, is so, so, so tough. When you're dealing with these um, students uh, at the time, I'm sure there's not enough of you, even with all that you talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, how are you suggesting that parents support in this work um, with, mm-hmm. with teenagers? Are there kind of simple tips that parents can do to kind of put their kids in a good mental space or check-in of some kind or resources? Yeah, that's such a good question. And I think especially within the context of the past three years and how all of our families and all of us have navigated the pandemic, that's been a huge question is how do we um, how do we support our kids through it? How do we as parents take care of our own mental health through a time of so much vulnerability and so much uncertainty? So I think, you know, first and foremost, I just want to name that um, I think that we're still we're just actually starting to see the impact on all of our mental health and just how much of a toll it's taken on our families and on all of us. Um, And I don't think we're quite out of it. It's starting to be in the rearview mirror, but um, what we're seeing in our schools is pretty dysregulated kids. Um, So for our younger kids, well, and and I think that some of our families have come through it with, without a lot of battle wounds. Um, They had stability in their jobs. They had a lot, lot of advantages and a lot of resources, be it, you know, nearby family or financial resources or um, community resources to be able to navigate and, and come through pretty unscathed. But many of our, our kids and our families had pretty significant impact. And, and so we're still seeing quite a bit of dysregulation um, with our family systems and with our youth. Um, so I think that, um, you know, families seeking out resources. I think there's quite a bit, at least here in the state of Colorado, um, in terms of mental health resources that are out there right now. So I would encourage families to seek out those resources, to contact their school mental health provider if they're having difficulty navigating community resources and need some guidance in in where to look. Um, I can also share in my bio, Dan, some some resources. I put together a youth mental health uh, resource sheet on on a Google page that families can access and I'm trying to keep that updated all the time. So one simple one uh, within the state of Colorado is the iMatter program that provides um, up to, I believe six or eight free counseling sessions for any youth in Colorado. Um, so that is a great resource um, that I want families to be aware of. Um, if youth are experiencing any sort of suicidal ideation, there's a wonderful program called Second Wind Fund, where youth can access free counseling sessions um, to treat um, depression and anxiety that might be causing them to feel suicidal. Uh, we're always uh, looking at how we can keep youth safe. That's a huge part of my job. Um, And so that's a great resource. And I would encourage families to seek out adult mental health as well, that um, I think we've found lots of ways of of numbing what we've been going through, whether it be through alcohol and drug use, um, too much screen time, um, lots of different ways to cope with the overwhelming amounts of anxiety and fear that we've experienced over the last few years. And what we experienced is not normal. And so to encourage parents to 
seek out their own mental health resources and, and building their own community, finding ways to connect with, um, whether it's through a faith community or neighbors, um, people through their school, ways to get connected to other parents in the school. I think as much as we can decrease that, that sense of isolation, um, joining my Facebook group, Project Village, you know, finding other like-minded people to feel less isolated, I think can go a really long way with, with mental health. We'll get to the to the young people next because I think they do get this, and and as it moves forward, I, I think it will only get better because they are so aware of mental health and it isn't as stigmatized as I feel it is for our generation. Are you seeing or have you seen throughout your career there has been a, um, a positive correction to people interacting with mental health and therapists and, and taking advantage of these systems? Mm, that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> I think what I'm seeing quite a bit is that it's being talked about a lot more and, and normalized, um, quite a bit more, but unfortunately we're still seeing some really pretty horrible news stories. I, I think, um, you know, the recent celebrity passing of Twitch really hit me hard. Um, I've always followed him since his days on. So you think you can dance. And I just see him as somebody who always exuded joy and happiness and, um, just, you know, always had a smile and yet he took his own life um, by suicide. So we never know what, what internal struggles people are having privately. And so um, that just absolutely broke my heart. And there's countless stories of that um, in the news with, with celebrities, as well as um, within our communities, when we hear of um, people in our own communities, youth that I work with who who take their own lives or are struggling that, you know, we're somebody you would never think that is having mental health struggles, but didn't um, have the, the ability or, or were struggling in silence and, and weren't able to connect with what they needed to get that support. And then culturally, I think there's a lot of stigmas around mental health. So I work with many families who they see my title as mental health coordinator, and it automatically, you know, causes them to take a step back because for them, um, in their culture, uh, mental health means you're being taken away to the hospital to be locked up because you are psychotic, you are schizophrenic. So I think mental health, um, when we think about it on a preventative end, we all have mental health, just like we all have physical health, right? We have to go to a dentist um, regularly to, to take care of our dental health. We have to go for our checkups and get blood work and um, get our shots, get our immunizations to take care of our physical health. And the same thing for mental health, when we think about it on a preventative level, um, universally, we all need to do things to take care of our mental health. And that's the way I try to talk about it with kids. And um, I think that there's a lot going on in our schools that I think is very positive and how we frame that for our youth. Um, but there are some districts that are having pushback with things like social emotional learning, that that is um, a negative thing, that if we talk to kids about our, our mental health, that for some reason that is, is seen as a negative. And for me, from my perspective, that can only have positive results because we can chip away at that stigma that we've, we've had for so many years. Yeah, and I think the students mm -hmm. get it. And especially that generation, again, these next generations that are coming up, I think are so empathetic and um, need to be empowered in ways that they can, that they can help each other and, and help support each other in this work and and that's something when we started mom bird one of the original things that i saw was that mental health was a major issue for our women and so were they able to show up to these appointments and do these interviews and in, in, in a successful way and so we ended up partnering with the center of trauma and resilience to, to get free therapy 
but then even them partaking in the free therapy, um, my, my goal was to pay them to go to this. So they were kind of, they had that extra carrot so they could see it working. And, and it's, it's what, one thing I've learned about it too, is it's not a, a single meeting does not fix anything and does not fix mm -hmm. everything, right? It needs to be maintenance work. It needs to be seen in that way where you're kind of building on something like you would anything mm -hmm. else or working out or whatever it is. And I think that's being, um, being shown more too, that the, just the consistency with it. One thing with that though, is it's so hard as a school, you've got so many students and so little resources. What would the answer look like if it was perfect? How, how would it, how would the mental health program, if there was an unlimited budget and kids were partaking mm -hmm. in it, what would that look like in, in your mind and in, in a dream world? Mm -hmm. Oh gosh, that's such a good question. Um, one of the parts of my job that I am absolutely thrilled and honored to, um, to get to be a part of is uh, we have a grant that's a three-year grant from the Colorado Department of Education called the K through five social emotional health pilot program. And so we um, applied for this grant actually pre-pandemic and then the state of Colorado froze the funding for a year because of um, the state budget being in crisis during the first year of the pandemic. And then it unfroze. And so we um, are in year two now and we have the ability in five of our um, highest need elementary schools in our district, um, we have five social emotional learning specialists who were hired through this grant. And we have, <clears throat> excuse me, a huge focus on trauma informed work. So we are working with teachers and educators in the school and paraprofessionals to understand what trauma informed approaches in the educational setting looks like. So, um, and when we think of trauma, there's the capital T trauma that's like, you know, I've experienced uh, one of the adverse childhood experiences like child abuse or domestic violence or witnessing um, some violence in my community. But then the lowercase T trauma is what we've all experienced, right? Through the course of the pandemic, um, our lives have been pretty traumatized. And when we can universally have trauma-informed approaches in an educational environment, we're treating our educators and our youth with more gentleness. We are um, having less of the punitive discipline approaches where we are sending the kid to the um, principal's office when they are acting up in class and instead having a teacher squat down to that child's level, make some eye contact and say, hey, what's going on? What, what's happening right now that I can support you? Let's take a minute to catch our breath and do some breaths and then we'll get you back to learning, right? Um, so having a gentler approach and a more um, mental health um, friendly approach. Um, our social emotional learning specialists are all also doing small groups with students to help them build um, better coping strategies around anxiety and depression that they might be experiencing. They're working on building relationships with families, identifying if they're, sorry, my dog is sitting behind me scratching on the chair. Um, and uh, working with families to help them get connected with mental health resources in the community if that's something that they need. We are working on implementing a universal screener for the first time. So just like we do a universal screener for kids with their uh, reading skills or their math skills, we are doing um, a social emotional screener where we can help identify students that might be struggling in silence that we're not aware of so that we can help get some interventions and support in place earlier. So when they get to that level in middle school and high school, they're not at a place where they've been struggling with anxiety and depression for many years um, and at a place where they might be suicidal. So lots of great work within this pilot program that I'm hoping we can show great success and then scale it um, you know, further throughout our district and be a model for other school districts about what um, early intervention can look like in public education. 
Yeah, and it seems so obvious that that's a great investment in society having this these again normalizing and getting students to interact with these resources young and so that as they age they can be using them continually and seeing the value of them. And I'm sure there's magic numbers as far as when you're doing it when you're really young like that. It just is something that you're just used to as opposed to seeing it when you're too cool in middle school or getting to your teenage years or whatever it is. Um, so that does sound wonderful. So I'm sure more more people, more professionals. Um, is it a hard, it seems like social work in general is a, a field that we need more people going into. Are you seeing that there's uh, a lot of people going into this work or are people going away? Teaching is one that I'm really concerned mm. with because the mental health that you talked about. I know a lot of people who are leaving teaching forever, um, yeah. which is which is tragic. Um, but is are you seeing it with the, the social work and the therapy that people are coming into these fields? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, we're really proud of our internship program in Cherry Creek. So we do um, internships for both um, school psychology students as well as social work students. And they come in bright and shiny and ready to take on the world. And unfortunately, burnout is real and secondary trauma is real. And so that is also a big focus of our, um, our trauma-informed work is taking care of our educators. And I say educators, including our mental health professionals, um, the field of education, especially public education is very, very challenging right now. Um, the way that, um, as I mentioned earlier, the um, dysregulation that our students are feeling are showing up as really hard behaviors in many of our schools um, because I think kids communicate through, through their behavior, right? Uh, you can't expect a five or six year old to sit down and say, I'm feeling very anxious and stressed right now. Can you support me with that? Nope, they're throwing chairs, they're running from the classroom, they have aggressive behaviors. Um, so they're really showing us the dysregulation that they have felt for the past three years. Um, and so I think that we have a lot of work to do to change our systems so that um, we can better meet the needs of our students. And so that is working with our educators and, and our principals and our building systems to create more trauma-informed systems to better meet our students' needs. And um, yes, more mental health professionals is great. And I will say staffing has been a huge challenge for us. Um, we have our biggest uh, group of new hires this year in our district than we've ever had before. I think we have 42 new hires. And part of my job is, is doing a lot of training and onboarding and induction work, matching our new hires with mentors, um, more seasoned mental health professionals to help them you know, get onboarded and have a great first year in our district. But it's incredibly hard. The work that they're doing is very, very difficult in the schools. And so um, we really just want to support them so that they can stay in the profession and also feel really fulfilled by their work and not not burn out. How can parents, if people are listening and they want to help out with these kind of things at their schools, um, are there ways that people can help out? That's a great question. Um, I know that there's a lot of work in parent groups and we're so blessed in our community. I, I feel like our parent community in Central Park is incredibly supportive of teachers and educators. Um, I think that there's always awareness to be raised around what the school mental health people are doing. Um, I think that they are really at the heart of every incredible piece of work that happens in schools. Um, school mental health people are at the uh, forefront when it comes to our equity work and serving our kids who are on the margins. So our school mental health providers are serving our students of color and making sure that they are getting 
the resources that they need and the anti-racism work that's happening in our schools is often led by our school psychologists and school social workers um, serving our youth who identify as LGBTQ, um, gay, lesbian, um, especially our transgender youth. Um, we're seeing that more and more that we are coming up with gender support plans for our students who identify as transgender, non-binary, or gender non-conforming. And often that work is led by our school mental health professionals. So I think um, for parents to um, take some time to get to know who the school mental health professionals are in their schools, offer some gratitude, make sure that they're included when there's holiday gifts and birthday gifts. Um, our community is so generous when it comes to gifts for our teachers and making sure um, school mental health professionals are um, given that same level of appreciation and support as well. Yeah, that's a very valid point, especially if you're in a, a privileged place to not have your students strictly or interacting with them on a, on a regular basis too. You may not even be aware of these people in mm -hmm. the schools. And so that's a time where you do have that capacity to support them and help out in that way and appreciate them. So that's a, that's a very valid point. Um, how are you doing? You have this job that's difficult. You've got this thing that you're doing. How do you balance being a mother, being a parent, being away from work yeah. and with, with your actual job? Oh, that's a good question. The age-old question. I've been joking for years that there should be a support group for spouses of mental health professionals because it takes a really special person to be married to someone that does this work. Um, so I try to have enough of my own um, compassion and energy left over at the end of the day to come home and be a great wife and mom to my kids. Um, I have a lot of self-care practices and that continues to evolve over time. Um, having really good boundaries, um, which again, sometimes works really well and sometimes needs a little bit of work. I, I think that um, oftentimes when, when somebody does this work, we are overly generous with, um, with serving others and then we don't have a lot left in the tank at the end of the day. So being really clear with our own boundaries about where we draw the line and, and what we're giving, right? So um, being able to shut off my laptop at a certain time, not checking my email or voicemail, um, and just really making sure I'm taking care of myself physically, emotionally, and spiritually um, with some really good self-care practices. I didn't ask you, this could be a good place to ask you if you feel like a badass. Do you feel, you yourself feel like you're a badass? Um, I, I do. Being a badass can be pretty exhausting. Um, I think certainly speaking on a TED stage made me feel like a badass, um, but I, I tell the people that I get to serve every day as mental health professionals, we are badasses every day because the space we hold for others um, takes a lot of work and takes really special people to do that kind of work. And so um, I would be remiss if I don't toot my own horn as well and call myself a badass with the work that I do every day. There you go. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, you said you're, you're still working on or, or perfecting your self-care, but you're doing pretty well in it. Do you have any other tips for other busy women out there that do have um, tough jobs, just life in general is, uh, even if it's easy, I feel it is still tough. What kind of recommendations do you have for people for general self-care and to make sure they're in a good space? Yeah, for sure. Um, gosh, I do whole like workshops on this with, with educators because I think it's so important and and even when I do my orientation with new mental health um, people in our district, we have a whole chunk in our orientation day just on self-care. And the slide that I have says self-care, not just a bubble bath. 
Um, and self-care is really so much more than that. And so I think for me, a huge part of my self-care is humor and joy. So finding ways to, um, to laugh a lot. So, and, and sometimes it's kind of a sick sense of humor. So finding shows that make me laugh. I'm a big Ted Lasso and Schitt's Creek fan. So that kind of humor is like my best self-care. And so when I've had a hard day, just going back and like picking any random episode of Ted Lasso just fills, fills me back up. Um, finding joy in every day, whether it's, you know, being outside, watching the sunset, being with my dog, being with my kids, playing games, doing puzzles, um, in those kinds of things, doing a really good workout where I just am sweating and, um, you know, I dread going to the gym, but after I, I go, I feel like I sweat out a lot of my, my cortisol that built up during the day. So I think that that's a really important part of my self-care as well. Yeah, I, I agree with all those things. And, and I think that you can do things that are nice for you, but then things that are physical and also mental. And I think um, therapy can be a huge part of that too. And just your um, general prioritizing yourself. I love the analogy of putting the oxygen mask on yourself because that's so needed. And I think so many women, most probably all women are like you talk about pouring so much out from their cups. Mm. They need to make sure that you, that you have some there. Well, and I just want to add one thing to that, Dan. I when I pose the question to my new hires in mental health, why is self-care important? They almost always say, I want to take care of myself so I can give back to others. And I think that, yes, that's important. And I want to say, you want to take care of yourself because you deserve to be taken care of. You deserve to be a whole healthy human being, not just to give back to others, but you deserve to take care of yourself, period, end of story, right? Um, and so I would say that to any mom, to any um, human being who's in the helping profession or who has a hard job, that you deserve to be a whole human, period, end of story. Yeah, I listened to, I don't know exactly what the reference was. I was listening to a book on tape, um, and they were talking about, too, kind of how in a world where there's so much terrible things going on, how do you still, you know, enjoy things if you're helping people that are struggling so much and dealing with it? And the, the answer was, I think it may have been the Dalai Lama or someone like that. It said that you can't give to other people if you don't find joy in your own world and you're not happy to, you can't basically give back. And so mm -hmm. that's so right. And so, so before that, and even looking at it, it was a, a, from a selfish, I tell that to the women in our program too, like be selfish. If you're doing good things in this world, you being successful in that is going to yes. help, help the world. So you taking care of yourself and being happy and being the best version of yourself, which all that comes from um, is definitely the way to do it. Um, saying all that, what's next for you? What do you want as you move forward in life here? Well, let's see. I'm going to finish my cup of coffee this morning. <laughs> I'm in the middle of a good book. So I'm going to finish reading the book. I'm reading Michelle Obama's The Light We Carry, which ties in really, really well with everything we're talking about today. Um, I think for the future, I, I want to, you know, we're about to go back into our school. We, we've been on winter break the past two weeks. So I'm looking forward to the spring semester and, and all good things with our students and my team. And then, um, you know, the future in terms of Project Village, I would love more opportunities to, to speak to groups, to speak um, on stages, you know, as, as terrifying as it was, I think that the messaging is just so um, valuable and I think brings a lot of inspiration to others about being a leader in social media and how we are all leaders, that a leader is not just someone who is in charge, quote unquote, but a leader is all of us. So how we can show up with greater compassion and connection and community 
um, in social media spaces. So I would love to be able to share that story um, with more audiences. Um, I am also a certified Dare to Lead facilitator, the work of Brene Brown. And so I love um, getting to train groups in nonprofit and education sectors on how to show up as a leader with um, greater um, connection and um, human relationship. I think that relationships are really at the core of all of our work and we can't do great work in the nonprofit and education sectors without taking care of each other. And so um, in my own school district, I've been doing a lot of work with Dare to Lead with people who are new to being principals or assistant principals or directors um, so that as they're leading their teams, um, they are um, leading from a place of courage and not from a place of shame. And that's um, the work of Dare to Lead is really, really incredible skill sets of courage that I think can be used in all sorts of sectors. That all sounds wonderful. And you are just showing me you're so well-rounded and doing so many things in so many different areas. I really appreciate that about you. So that's my, my, my last question. So I'm starting a new thing here and you've already owned that you are a badass, but I just want you to close out this podcast by owning it again and telling me you're, I am Lauren Ross and I am a badass. I am Lauren Ross and I am a badass. Thank you again for listening to this podcast. Please go to iTunes or whatever provider you're listening on and give us a rating so we can do more of this important work. Please keep sending me suggestions of people we should interview on this show. And finally, and most importantly, please always remember that you, yes you, are a badass.